Hello everyone, I'm Drew Kapadia. As I finish my final years of high school, I've decided to create this podcast to share my passion for philosophy with the world and dispel common myths about its utility. I've studied philosophy both in school and personally, ranging from the early enlightenment to 20th century postmodernism. My goal with each episode of Philosophy Forum is to touch on some aspect of philosophy in relation to the status quo that I find fascinating, troublesome, or otherwise worth discussing. I'll be bringing in experts in philosophy to help. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Today, I'm joined with Dr. Paul Conway. Dr. Conway is an assistant professor at Florida State University in the Department of Psychology. He has published a variety of work that concerns questions of morality, justice, and ethics, detailing the intricate processes of moral dilemmas and social judgments. Today, we will be focusing on one of his works that he collaborated on called How Do You Regret Killing One to Save Five? Affective and Cognitive Regret Differ After Utilitarian and Deontological Decisions. Our hope today is to discover the social processes that determine how we make decisions when faced with moral dilemmas. Dr. Conway, thank you so much for joining me today. Yes, hi. Thanks for having me. Uh, Before we dive into the specifics of your article, can you tell us a little bit about the difference between a utilitarian decision and a deontological decision? (laughs) Well, okay, it sounds like a simple question, but it's actually the source of a major theoretical dispute in the field. So these terms are philosophical terms, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Utilitarian philosophy comes to us from people like Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mill, who argued that the way you should judge an action is by the outcomes it produces. Actions that produce the best outcomes are morally the best. On the other hand, you have philosophers like Immanuel Kant, who have argued for a deontological perspective where they say you just you should judge the action on the, the act itself. Actions that are intrinsically good are right, and actions that are intrinsically wrong are bad. So uh, actions that harm people are wrong and therefore always bad regardless of consequences. This comes to a head when you start looking at sacrificial dilemmas where you could, for example, kill one baby to save a village. Now you're directly causing harm, but it maximizes outcomes. So that's inconsistent with deontological ethics, but it upholds utilitarian ethics. So there's a tension there from these ethical perspectives. Mm-hmm. The real trick then is then when we as researchers start studying how do people make decisions in these cases. And it turns out that very few regular people are thinking about abstract philosophical ideas when they're answering these questions. So in some ways, it's better to sort of use a neutral term like accept sacrificial harm or reject sacrificial harm, which people then can call a utilitarian or deontological decision. Hmm. So these ethical choices like utilitarian versus deontological, it can almost be thought of as utilitarian being more like, as you mentioned in your article, being more cognitive 
and deontological emphasizing more like the emotional realm you might feel bad about the action itself not really considering the outcomes is that so i know yeah, that might be so like a simplification but it is it is mm. and there's lots of people who have lots of, of factors that they like to focus mm. on here um you can call the decision a utilitarian decision because it maximizes outcomes if you sacrifice one to save many and you can call refusal to do that a deontological decision because it upholds deontological rules but we want to disentangle that like those are the decisions that people can call consistent with philosophy but we should disentangle that from the psychological motivations that people use to arrive at their judgments and so in that regard, there is a classic dual process model that basically suggests, yeah, if you say, hey, do you want to kill a baby to save a village? The stronger people have this emotional reaction to the thought of hurting the baby, the stronger they don't want to do that. So the more ontological they decide and the more people are using their careful, logical, rational thinking, well, overall, five lives is worth more than one. The more uh, you know, consistent with utilitarian thinking, the more likely they are to say, yes, sacrifice this one to save these five. That's definitely still a simplification because there's a lot of nuance, but that's sort of the classic, the classic model. Mm -hmm. And so, like going back to like that tough scenario you propose, like the baby versus the village, it seems always critical in these sacrificial dilemmas to look at the outcome <laughs> the decision is made. Like, did you kill the baby or save the village? And so, your article mm -hmm. focuses on this emotion of regret that comes to those who make the decision. Can you explain what regret is and the different types of regret theorized within your research? Yeah, so uh, this is drawing on some work by my collaborators. And the mm -hmm. idea is people have regrets sometimes when they do a decision and they feel bad about that decision or they wanted to make a different decision. And although we often think of regret as a sort of general thing, um, in this line of thinking, you can break down regret into two subtypes. There's affective regret and cognitive regret. Right. So affective regret is about your emotions, how you feel about your decision. Right. It's saying, I feel bad about my decision or I feel upset that I made that decision. It's this a focus on your own emotional reaction to the decision you made. Whereas cognitive regret is thinking about the other choice you could have made, saying, I wish I could have changed my decision. My decision was not the optimal decision. I logically should have made a different decision. So. You can zero in emotionally on the decision you made, or you can focus logically on what the alternative would have been. Mm -hmm. Based on that answer and kind of what we were discussing earlier, it seems that there has to be some sort of connection between utilitarian and deontological decisions and affective and cognitive regret. What kind of pattern did your team hypothesize mm -hmm. and what was your thinking behind this hypothesis? Right. And so now we have to add a third layer to all of this, mm -hmm. which is People aren't just making these decisions in a vacuum, but these are intensely important personal and social decisions. People care about what their choice means about them as a person and how it reflects on who they are and what they care about. And people are also worried about how their decision will reflect on their eyes and other people's eyes, reflect on them in other people's eyes, right? So if I say, sure, I'm, I'll murder this baby, sounds great, let's save this village. I risk coming across cold and callous to other people and yeah. myself. It it can lead me to sit there lying awake at night saying, am I really that cold? You know, on the other hand, someone says, no way, I'm not going to save that baby and just let the village die. They have to go to bed thinking every night, I could have saved those people. I, I If I did a smarter decision, I could have saved those people. Am I really that dumb? You know. So what we suggested was considering this role of sort of emotion and cognition that leads people to say, no harm the baby or yes, save the village. 
people would express emotional regret or cognitive regret to kind of balance out the choice that they made. So if someone makes the more sort of emotional choice of, I don't want to hurt the baby at any cost, right? Regardless of who's, who, who's hurt by my decision, I can't go through with this because my emotions are too high. We predicted and we found that those people were pretty, they were okay with their feeling about their decision. They felt they made a good decision, but logically they recognized that the other choice would have been better. So they showed more cognitive regret, but less affective regret. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, people who said, yes, I'm going to kill that baby and I'm going to save that village. They felt really bad about their decision. They showed a lot of affective regret. They said, I feel bad about my choice, but would I make a different choice? No. Mm -hmm. Basically summarizing that, like utilitarian decisions often were accompanied with more affective regret, while deontological decisions were more accompanied with cognitive regret is what the hypothesis was, correct? Yes. All right. That obviously seems hard to measure something abstract like regret. So what was the research process Mm -hmm. and the experiments? What did they look like to measure this and come to some sort of conclusion? Uh, Right. So um, psychology is hard because we are trying to measure these concepts in the mind, right? Constructs. We're trying to measure things like self-esteem or well-being or, you know, attraction or other things that you can't directly touch, taste or see. But people can still report on their experiences of these events. And the goal of science is to be able to measure stuff and come up with new ways of measuring things that haven't been done before. Uh, so my colleagues, uh, including uh, Amy Somerville in particular, uh, they came up with a new method, a new measure to try and get at affective and cognitive regret. Right. So they developed a series of items that were tailored conceptually to try and get affective regret. So things like I feel bad about my dis- decision. And then other questions that were tailored to get at cognitive regret, like, I wish I made a different decision. And it's in some ways very simple. You simply ask people to respond to these questions after a choice on a scale from one to seven. How much do you feel this or how much how well does this phrase describe you? So some people are are high in everything. Some people are low in everything. And some people are, are agreeing with the items about affective regret, but not cognitive or vice versa. And then what you do in general in this kind of work is you you validate the measure by saying, okay, what if we amp up people's emotions? Will they demonstrate more affective regret? Okay, what if we get people to think carefully about alternatives? Will they show higher cognitive regret? So you sort of have a conceptual model, you build a measure, and then you test how well that measure lines up with things in the world that should affect the way that it operates. So they had developed that measure in previous work. So we, we built directly on that by using their same affective cognitive measure in our own work. But what we did is we drew upon uh, some sacrificial dilemmas that we've been using for many other studies, right? So we had people come in the lab and they had to resolve uh, one of three different moral dilemmas, right? So we had, I think it was the crying baby mm-hmm. dilemma. We also think had a drug lord dilemma. So I uh, suppose there's this drug lord who's like running everything in your town and you're like this barber and you could... Oh, I think it, or maybe it was a waiter and you could poison their soup and that would prevent a lot of violence on the streets, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, so we had these dilemmas where you can directly cause harm, but it will result in these positive outcomes. Right. And we had people ultimately they had to say, yes, I think this is acceptable or no, I don't think this is acceptable to you. And then they reported how they were feeling on this regret scale. Right. And that let us tease out how much affective and how much cognitive regret were they reporting. Mm-hmm. And did the results of this experiment, did it confirm your initial hypothesis? Yeah, it was largely consistent. Uh, we have four studies showing the effect. I think uh, I think in one study it was not quite there, but it, the effect mm-hmm. overall was pretty strong uh, across studies, right? So in general, people who said, 
no, I won't kill the baby even to save the village, then we're typically saying things like, I feel really good about my choice. I'm not sad about that choice, but logically it would have been smarter and I wish I'd made the other decision. And then people who said, yes, kill that baby, save that village. They typically said, I feel really badly about my choice, but on the other hand, I wouldn't make a different choice. To go off of that and take it one step further, and at the initial part of our conversation, you're talking about how our decisions might change if we had an audience or someone was watching us, putting maybe right. putting pressure on us to make the morally right decision. I believe in one of your studies, I think study three, you sort of tested this hypothesis. Can you tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about this specific experiment and yeah, what you found right. about this phenomenon? We had a public condition and a private condition. So mm -hmm. I think we said something like, imagine you have five of your closest friends watching you make your choice uh, versus just imagine it's just you and you're the only one who knows your choice. Uh, and as I recall, I don't think it made a big difference for our results. Wow. Some studies do find that the presence of other people modifies choices. <laughs> Got a cat here. Uh, some studies, some studies find that either the presence of other people modifies choices, in particular when people feel that it's their friends or their in-group who are there, they feel a little more allowed to make the utilitarian sacrifice, right? Mm -hmm. uh, other studies show that you can manipulate people's choices with public pressure. If every if you have a line of people and they say one after another, no way, I wouldn't kill the baby, no way, I wouldn't kill the baby, no way, and then it's your turn, Yeah, people are much more likely to say, no, I wouldn't kill the baby under those conditions. Yeah, like a herd mentality and, almost. Yes, exactly. It's, it's this idea of they're setting this kind of social norm where typically this is what people do and then you have to make your decision in light of knowing what everyone else is thinking and feeling about that choice so there's a lot of pressure under those bad cases to definitely don't cause harm you can get a somewhat similar effect if everyone says yes kill the baby yes kill the baby yes kill the baby but it seems less powerful there's more flexibility uh in the sense of people who are more willing to make that utilitarian sacrifice they seem to show a little bit more of a balance. They seem to consider the alternative option more. There's a quite a large subset of people who say, absolutely no, I would never cause harm to that baby for any reason. And I, how dare you even ask me that question? This is upsetting to me that you would even make me think about this. It's against my religious identity or who I am at my core of my person. I'm a decent human being. There's no way I would go through with your sick plan, you stupid scientist. That's a, a pretty common feeling that some people have. It's more common among religious people, uh, more common among people who are guided primarily by their intuitions, um, those kinds of things. Yeah. So it seems like the background of people play a major role in these decisions. Did your experiment yes. account for those in any way? Or was that some? Was that why there wasn't really much of a dif difference between being in public versus being in private? Yeah, great. Uh, I think there's, that, that's, there's two related ideas there. Um, so I don't think we got a very strong difference between public and private in our studies because um, in past work, we've shown that people think that someone who says, no, don't kill the baby is warm and moral and a good romantic partner and a nice person, but also kind of dumb and neurotic and a bad leader. And they don't want them to have power in society, like running a hospital or running a business. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, they say someone who says, yes, kill that baby, save that village. They think that person is smart and a good leader and an intelligent person to run a hospital or a business, but cold and immoral and a bad person to invite for dinner and don't date them. Definitely don't say that on a first date. <laughs> it might be your last date, you know? Mm -hmm. So uh, there's this feeling that um, people are communicating either strong emotions that are focused on individuals that suggest they're a trustworthy, warm, decent human, or people are communicating this cold kind of reptilian intelligence that 
also suggests they don't genuinely care about individuals, which can be frightening in a social interaction. People are communicating these things, other people are picking up on them, and people themselves realize and know how they're coming across. They know what their decision communicates to other people. They can regularly expect how other people will rate them as, as warm and competent and so on based on their decision. And what matters, so, so people are, are thinking about their choice, not just in terms of what will other people think of me, but how do I want to be? What kind of person am I? And how do I want other people to think about me? And so, in other words, this is where you sort of get this mixing of concerns about other people and concerns about the self that are related to this idea of conscience, that mm -hmm. we want to be the best version of ourselves. And part of that may reflect concerns about other people, but part of that then gets integrated into the self-concept where deep down we truly do want to be ourselves. And we want to communicate the decision that best reflects who we really are, how we want to see ourselves in an idealized way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, I don't think this public-private manipulation worked in our studies uh, because I think there's some degree of people already caring about what other people think and how they relate, how their decision reflects on them so that they don't necessarily need the presence of other people. Hmm. That said, it was not a strong manipulation. We simply said, imagine yeah. your friends are here to witness your decision. So it's entirely possible that if we actually piled their friends into the room and said, everybody stand around and watch while they make their choice. It, that might've been a stronger, it evoked a stronger sense that they have to modify their decision. That's really interesting that you like bring that up. Like humans are inherently social creatures. So even without like the presencing of friends, they're already thinking about what others think of them. Even if like someone would even find out about the, find out about that decision in the first place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is there any reason for that? It's just, that's just how we're trained. That's, how would be the habitat we've been we're experiencing right now or in a way it's a strategic decision right mm. so the social structures that we all live in work the best when everybody helps each other cooperates acts in a trustworthy and moral fashion when everybody's caring about each other and so on right society breaks down when people act in selfish and self-interested ways and what that creates is this interesting paradox where you benefit more from convincing everyone else to act in a moral way. And how do you convince them? Well, in part, you yourself have to act in something of a moral way to convince them that it's also worth their time because you're upholding your end of the bargain, so they better hold up their end of the bargain, which means you need to convince yourself that you're a really good moral person so that you can be more persuasive to convince them that you're a good moral person so that you can persuade them to be a better moral person so that it's better for you to live in the society with them. So there's this idea that there's a, an element of self-deception in morality where people are really motivated to view themselves as moral and good as possible as part of this strategic uh, way to create social norms where ultimately we are all living in a better society. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we're like talking about like the societal implications that this can have and how we relate to others when making moral decisions. So, you know, it's always good to talk about these practical implications of philosophical inquiry can you describe some more of these implications that your research might have beyond what we just discussed yes right so um right now we're actually running a series of studies on doctors who are facing sacrificial decisions about covid19 the pandemic right mm -hmm. so we have these dilemmas where it's you know if you're a doctor and your your emergency room's getting overwhelmed you have this one patient on like a respirator but you can take it off and save a pregnant mother with a young baby so <laughs> difficult should you effectively sacrifice one patient to save two lives or cases like this right 
and uh, we have a sample of real practicing medical healthcare professionals mm-hmm. who are facing these kinds of problems in their wards, who are giving us answers on these problems. And there is pretty strong disagreement between them on what wow. was the right decision in every case. But we also ask people to justify and explain their, their decisions. And in general, we find that some people are justifying things using mainly like logical reasoning. They're saying like, look, logically, you have to triage people. It's just the way it is. Sorry, this person's going to have to die because I need to save the most patients possible. And other doctors were saying things like, no, it's it's my duty of care to this individual that I can't abandon any patient under my care. That's what my duty as a doctor is. And I can't necessarily save these additional people, but I'm already caring for this person. There's no way I'm going to disengage for them. And so some people are sort of talking about things in a way that's zeroing in on individual who will be harmed. And other people are focusing on the broader abstract group that will be saved. And so what we're looking at is what are not only the implications of these doctors' decisions for other people, how they trust the medical system, but also the way doctors describe and justify and explain their decisions to see if that's influencing how much trust people have in the medical system. Mm-hmm. What we're predicting is similar to this study and some other studies, that people will like and respect doctors more when they demonstrate a balance of concerns, both for the specific individual who will suffer and for the broader group who will benefit. And that may involve a degree of balancing affective concerns and cognitive processing, right? And any any doctor who's making a very unilateral decision saying, I only care about this patient, everyone else, sorry. Or I only care about the group and I'm sacrificing anyone I need to to do that. Those kinds of extreme positions may undermine people's trust in the healthcare system and raise concerns that, well, what if I go to the hospital? Am I going to get sacrificed? Or mm-hmm. what if I go to the hospital? Am I not going to get care because they're too focused on this one person they already have? Right. So in theory, we suggest that there's some sort of uh, affective cognitive balance, this balanced approach of considering multiple perspectives and multiple points of view and valuing both the individual and the group that communicates this genuine sort of moral concern that is reassuring to people and should hopefully increase trust in the medical system. Yeah, that's really refreshing because oftentimes people are like, that's so unrealistic. There's never going to be like a baby in a village. This scenario is so far-fetched. I don't even know why I'm answering this. So, you know, applying these sort of this sort of philosophy to things that are very pertinent right now like the medical system and trust mm-hmm. is very is very awesome thank you mm-hmm. it turns out uh, so it's a common criticism of dilemmas and it's true that there's some very fantastical versions out there and uh, some versions that are not plausible or realistic and that is a problem because people do respond differently when they're implausible mm-hmm. or unrealistic but there's uh, people underestimate how many real world cases match these kinds of, of circumstances and also uh, how many people are working on realistic versions of scenarios? So, for example, uh, my graduate student, Elena Brandt, is working on workplace decision makers, mm-hmm. facing workplace to sacrificial decisions. Like, should you fire one worker so that you can save some other workers' jobs in your department, right? Or should you use this one employee as an example of a really bad call that went poorly that will really upset her, but be a valuable learning training exercise for other people in your call center, right? These are the kinds of real decisions that managers are facing, and it turns out People are drawing the exact same kind of inferences about this emotional processing and this logical processing. If your manager says, I don't care about your feelings, we're going to use your call as an effective tool and it destroys your your enjoyment at work. People are going to expect that person is a cold, like maybe very competent and effective leader, but also a dangerous person not to be trusted. Mm-hmm. You know, And so there are lots of real world parallels, right? There's also um, 
anytime human beings consider causing harm or distress to someone else in service of the greater good or broader ideals, this matches the logic of a sacrificial dilemma. So parents disciplining their children, you know, they're, they're going to take away things those kids want or, or give them things they don't want and upset those children, but they're doing it in order to instill this idea in these are important things that you need to be learning. Or teachers who might fail a student for doing a poor job in an assignment, they're really ruining that student's day or possibly failing them out of the class, causing harm and distress intentionally. But we don't think of that as necessarily immoral because it's in the service of trying to do help society and do the greater good. And it turns out politicians face these choices, mm -hmm. leaders of any large organization, every military commander in the history of human beings, right? There's lots of true real world examples of these kinds of sacrificial choices that people have made. And so far, the evidence we have from my lab and other labs as well is that the same kinds of basic classic inferences about who's a warm, decent, emotional person and who's a smart, logical leader type are applying to both classic dilemmas that are a bit artificial and weird and also realistic plausible cases from history yeah there's a lot of different ways this can play on you mentioned a lot of them that i didn't even think of so that's really really fantastic really? <laughs> all right dr conway i believe that's all i have for today thanks once again for talking with me sure it was fun <laughs>